Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network in Christian Studies, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Meg, the host of the channel for today, and we'll be talking to Kat Armas about her new book, Abuelita Faith, Women, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength. Kat, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Um, before we get started, I have to tell you that a good friend of mine, Marty from the Baymont podcast says hi. Oh, that, well, hello, Marty. I yeah. love the podcast. I remember a while ago, I something just really spoke to me in that podcast, and I tweeted about it, and it got a lot of attention on Twitter. <laughs> so. That's the so, best. Yeah. yeah, before Baymont was a podcast, it was a, a class on a campus at a university, so it's really crazy to see how it's evolved. Oh, that's awesome. That's so much fun. I love that. All right, Kat, I would love to start the interview by having you tell us a bit about yourself and some of the journey that you've been on that brought you to creating your new book, Abuelita Faith. Yeah, so um, I'm Cuban-American, originally from Miami, and I, I always specify that I'm from Miami because I, I think that, well, first of all, I think that to be a good theologian, you have to localize yourself, you know, and mm-hmm. place is very important. But also because um, being from Miami and being a Cuban-American has really shaped a lot of my experiences, how I understand the world, um, and really what led to the writing of this book. Um, you know, growing up in a city where I was part of the dominant culture, mm-hmm. you know, everybody, or not everybody, but the majority of people are Cuban. Um, so I never really had to wrestle much with my ethnic identity growing up. You know, I was part of the dominant culture, and it wasn't mm-hmm. until I left my sort of Cuban haven uh, that I was really uh, that I really had to wrestle with what it meant to be Cuban and what that mm-hmm. meant, particularly in a Christian setting. Um, but not just being Cuban, also being raised by a single mother and a single grandmother, mm-hmm. and and just being raised in in ways that the dominant culture may not um, celebrate or you know sort of um, be a, a banner for you know the, the quote unquote right way to be or whatever you want to yes. call it. Um, so yeah, so those are. Some experiences have sort of shaped me. And then when I, um, you know, I I transitioned, I I grew up, I was raised Roman Catholic, and then I transitioned to Protestantism. I was very naive, did not know anything about evangelicalism. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) yes. So I sort of stumbled upon white evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that was very jarring for me um, because Mm -hmm. of, you know, the fact that I I did come from um, a Cuban background and because I was raised by women. And so it was a very startling and very jarring thing um, to be met with white evangelicalism. And it was specifically because I was 
you know, sort of thrust into the, the um, you know, I, I mean, I moved to the South and to the Bible Belt and I went <laughs> to a Southern Baptist seminary. I mean, all the things. Um, and, and really I, I didn't know what to expect. Um, but very quickly I realized, you know, I, I mean, I went into seminary thinking I'm going to become closer to God and, you know, I'm going to learn so much about God. And I just ended mm-hmm. up feeling further away from God. And, you know, I ended up feeling like, wait a minute, you know, who I am, my experiences, my cultural identity, my background, all those things are only barriers, you know, for mm. me to experience or be close to God, which is obviously not the way that it should be. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that was um, part of the journey that sort of led to me wrestling with the faith of my of my childhood, um, the faith of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it really was, you know, I, I remember those first few years as a white or in within white evangelicalism. Um, mm-hmm. I just remember really believing and thinking that my grandmother or, and the community that raised me was not saved, you know, because mm-hmm. they were, you know, Roman Catholic or, you know, because their faith looked different, um, than mm-hmm. the, the faith that I was told was the right, you know, quote unquote, right way to practice. And so, mm-hmm. Yeah, that led to me wrestling with, well, what does it mean, you know, when when folks are just trying to survive and and their faith is birthed through that journey of survival, um, because that was the, the the reality for many of the people that surrounded me growing up. Uh, and and yeah, and then I, you know, just began wrestling with uh, what I like to call an abuelita faith. Um, you know, I didn't coin that term, but um, but yeah, I, that when I stumbled upon this abuelita theology. It really, really spoke to me um, because my grandmother was the beacon of, of faith and spirituality in my life, and and her faith wasn't lofty or mm-hmm. you know it wasn't she didn't have I mean she didn't go to school she wasn't formally educated um, but her faith was embodied and her faith was was a real living faith which was so different than the the faith that I was um, being fed you know in in mm-hmm. in the formal theological seminary um, sort of setting. So yeah, I hope that answers your question a little bit of how this book came about. Yes, it does. And it's opening the doors for so much good things. Okay, (laughs) so I'm just going to keep us moving through the book. And I love that you take us right from the beginning. And you take time to introduce the complexity and the nuance. You don't just say, you know, this is it. And here's the answer. You create space for struggle, even in the process of discovering. And I think your book starts right with research grief. And Mm. I I honestly underline most of your book. So can you share (laughs) with our audience, like what this research grief looked like for you and how it hit you that day? Yeah. um, So that was a big, um, you know, turning point, I guess you can say in my journey was, was experiencing this research grief. I mean, we all sort of know the dark history of Christianity and we've heard Mm -hmm. about it. And, um, but it was in that moment that I began to study the history of my people, of the Cuban people and how, Mm -hmm. you know, it intersects with Christianity and colonization and all those things. And, Mm -hmm. and it became, it became really personal in that moment, you know, um, I remember, as I talk about in the book, I was reading Miguel de la Torre's The Case for the Cuban Christ and and just sitting there and reading about how women were raped and children, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was literally a line that he wrote, children were disemboweled and, mm-hmm. you know, men fell prey to the predator's swords. And and these were, you know, essentially Christians. I mean, they came in the name of, of Jesus. Their boats were literally named Jesus. And, you know, so these are just things that, that, you know, it, it became personal. It, it became something that this is my history. This is my, 
you know, the story of my people. Um, and that was, you know, that sort of grief, it, it really penetrated who I am and, and it penetrated, you know, everything that I thought I believed and it really mm-hmm. had me wrestling with, um, well, well, who is this Jesus then? You know, is this the Jesus I ask in Awalita Faith? Is this the Jesus that saved me? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, that I thought saved me or, or you know, um, and then, you know, wrestling with this idea of, well, if this isn't the Jesus who quote unquote saved me, then then what Jesus is this and what Jesus do mm. I know and what Jesus am I searching for, you know? Um, and then I, I began searching with this sort of idea of Jesus of los humildes, Jesus of the humble mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one, you know, who resembles or the, the Jesus of the New Testament that I feel like in many ways we we go so far from, you know? Right. Um, Jesus has become this warrior God, you know, that we only see the Jesus on the white horse with the sword. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's not the, the Jesus we see in the New Testament, you know, the one that we're told to emulate. And so, yeah, so that research grief was was very, um, it was a big moment for me to experience and just sort of sit in it, you know, sit in that generational grief um, and just start asking some hard questions. And I think that yeah, that's sort of what maybe you're referring to as far as the nuance, um, because it is complicated. You know, so much of it is complicated. When we look at the Bible, it's complicated. You know, our mm-hmm. lives, our stories, our histories are so complicated. Um, and I think that because there's so much darkness in our history and so much messiness, you know, the dominant culture wants to simplify, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of what Christianity is and, you know, sort of just brush things under the rug and and just pretend that it's um, – simple and easy. Um, but it's not, you know, and Mm -hmm. so I, I want to invite folks to just sit in that tension, you know, you don't have to, um, yeah, have it all figured out. We don't have to jump to platitudes. We don't have to, you know, we (laughs) we can just sit in that, um, in that tension and sit in that generational grief and sit in Mm -hmm. that research grief and let that move us and let that, stir up in us um, questions and let that even engage our theological imaginations. You know, if we mm. believe that God is who God says God is, then mm. what does that mean when we read these histories and these stories and when we, you know, investigate the effects of colonization? Well, what does that mean? You know? Um, so, yeah. So I think that part of that research grief is really just leaning into, into that tension into that um complexity and just sitting there and feeling it Mm -hmm. oh my gosh yes and I even just think of everything that you're saying to me feels like telling the truth you know like creating that space to tell the truth and I think even in scripture when we see accounts of people telling the truth telling the good news their whole households will be saved, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think you go on to say that in chapter five, it's all about telling the truth. And you share examples from your childhood in ways that are very endearing, but then you let it evolve into this like powerful testimonial experience. And you say in this chapter, I'm just going to read a quote real quick. Mm -hmm. Telling the truth is a catalyst for healing, not just for ourselves, for, for those in our community the marginalized, the oppressed, and those who come after us, our children and their children. Some indigenous teachers have been taught that once you heal, you do so seven generations forward. Some include seven generations in the past too. And Mm -hmm. I felt like that was some of the truest things that could be said in a book. And I'm just curious, would you mind talking about how you've seen this truth-telling 
healed beyond just yourself? Yeah, that's such a good question. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's a, I, I think I also quote this as a line that says, like, the truth in Spanish, you know, trae justicia, the truth brings justice. Um, mm. And I think that that's true when we, um, when we unearth things, you know, the Bible says, and, and I love this, this, you know, part of the scripture, this passage that, you know, it says that darkness cannot, you know, exist. Like when the light is introduced mm-hmm. to the darkness, like it cannot, you know, and I'm, I know I'm butchering the verse, but <laughs> <laughs> it's this idea that, you know, um, that, that light and darkness cannot exist together. And I think, yes. um, yeah, and, and Ephesians talks about this, you know, of how like when we tell the truth, you know, when we seek justice, like that is a light that is sort of, you know, that is, um, what's the word, you know, bringing the, the that is uncovering the darkness, I guess you can mm-hmm. say. And so, I, yeah, I think that, that is um, such an important thing for us in our journeys is to name, you know, the effects of, of colonization, the effects of this warrior Jesus, the effects mm-hmm. of, you know, all of this, because so many of us have been hurt, um, you know, by the dominant culture, by church and so many things in the name of Jesus, you know, in the mm-hmm. name of love. Um, and I think that in order for us to heal and not just, you know, ourselves, as I mentioned, you know, our future generations, mm-hmm. I think that we we need to be honest about um, just these dark histories, these dark, you know, um, these dark truths, you know, that are a part of our histories. And at least for me, you know, to answer your question, how have I seen this? Well, I mean, I'm certainly seeing it in in culture at large. You know, I know mm-hmm. that right now there's just a lot of talk about deconstruction and decolonization. I was talking to my spouse about this recently, and I said, you know, uh, several years ago, deconstruction or or a sort of or these conversations about deconstruction or sexual abuse in the church or all mm-hmm. of this stuff. You know, a few years ago, it could have been dismissed, but so mm. many people have been telling the truth and so many people have been persistent in their, you know, calls for justice that it can't really be dismissed anymore. You know, mm-hmm. um, I know so many people that when I started talking about this, were just so angry and unfollowed me and all, you know, all the things. And then now they've come back around and they're curious um, and they no longer say that I'm a heretic. But now they're like, yes. maybe there's, you know, <laughs> um, because it can't be dismissed anymore in many mm-hmm. spaces, I'm sure in some it can, but, um, you know, it just cannot be dismissed anymore. And so I see it in that way, you know, there's so much healing, um, healing folks, healing that folks are doing when it comes to, um, ways that they have been, um, you know, ways that the the church has let them down or ways that Christians have, have let them down, have hurt Mm -hmm. them. And, and I think that that, you know, once we have eyes to see, you know, it, it, it really changes how we, understand and how we I mean yeah how we engage with others and ourselves and I think it's that that moment of you know eyes to see and and there's a moment you know when when our eyes are sort of open to it and we think Mm -hmm. oh wow wait a minute you know and then that that does bring forth so much healing and in my life I know you know so much of what my my family's traumas and my family's pain and and so much of my family's you know all all these things that they have gone through that I you know, didn't realize back then or growing up um, how it affected me or how it might affect my future child, you know? And so this um, excavating of white Jesus or whatever you want to call it has led to, um, to yeah, to see my, my family's history in a new light and mm-hmm. therefore, you know, heal my, my own, allow me to heal my own journey and, 
and then yeah and my children you know um Mm -hmm. because when I heal I'm healing for my you know for our children for our future generations when we heal that's what we do so yeah I've seen it in so many ways and culture at large in my own life um yeah it's just been it's it's hard it's a hard journey but it is it can be so beautiful Mm, I love that um I want to go back. One of the the ways that you introduce Abolita theology is in a similar way too. You kind of excavate and open our eyes to other theological influences like womanist biblical hermeneutics, mujerista theology, feminist intercultural theology, and Latina evangelica thought. Can you tell mm-hmm. us... Um, just as the readers are listening, why it's important that you gave us those overviews in this book. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's my journey of understanding the Bible and understanding my own faith and, and the history of Christianity. Um, in order to do that responsibly, you know, I had to invite other schools of thought and, and other things. And, and that wasn't exclusively, you know, everything that I looked at, but I just wanted Mm -hmm. to highlight that because, um, you know, these are women doing theology. These are women from the margins doing theology, mm-hmm. um, something that has for so long been overlooked. Um, and women who have, you know, done this work and they have remained unnamed. And um, when we look at theology from, the, you know, all these different kinds of lenses, it gives us a fuller picture of of who God is. It gives us a fuller picture of um, the whole truth, the whole story, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me being able to, when I look at whether it's a passage or when I think about it's a, a theological idea, whatever it is, I want to hear how everyone else is thinking about it. You know, I want to mm-hmm. hear how womanists are engaging with this. I want to hear about how Latina evangelicas are engaging with this. I want to hear about, you know, how Mujerista theology thinks about this, mm-hmm. um, liberation theology in all different, you know, sort of in, in all different ways. I want to think about how decolonial thinkers are thinking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, how we understand theology is, like I said earlier, shaped by place and shaped by our, our social location and who we are. You know, I would say that all theology is subjective. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I want to, in order to get a fuller picture of who God is, I want to invite you know, all the schools of thought to, to engage with one another and with me. Um, you know, I, I like to say, and I say this in the book that the image of God, you know, is not just individual, but it's collective. You know, mm-hmm. we all need each other because in order to get a full image of who God is, you know, we need all people groups and all sort of ideas. And, you know, cause yeah, I, you know, I, I, I as a person, as a Christian, you know, I have the image of God, you know, I'm made in the image of God, but Mm -hmm. all of us as a community of people together make up the full image of God. And so Mm -hmm. inviting these schools of thought and inviting, you know, these frameworks um, is a way that I can do that, right? Is a way that I can get a full picture of the image of God and Mm -hmm. and understand fully who God is. And not even fully because there's so much (laughs) that I'm missing, but, you know, a little bit closer, I hope. (laughs) Yes. And I would say for everyone listening, that chapter alone should be the reason why you buy the book. Like there's so (laughs) much more, but like just to have some introduction to perspectives that can help you grasp and wrestle with a different experience, the underside of the scripture, you know, like reading with a new lens is so valuable and crucial for who we are. I guess, assemble Jesus to be in our mm. real life experience. And I just think it was so 
It was so yeah. well done. You just gave like you just brought us right to it and it was so helpful. So thank you so much for that. Oh no, thank you. And I love how you said assemble Jesus. Yeah, because that's, <laughs> yeah. no, that's so good. It's I mean it's exactly what we do. And I think that, you know, as I was wrestling with these Bible passages, you know, I tried to say, well, you know, this is how a decolonial thinker would think of this. And mm-hmm. this is how, you know, this person would think of this. And you know, I may not have the, the, there is no right way to think about it. And there's just mm-hmm. different ways to think about it. And so let me try and invite these different, th- you know, these different ideas. And, you know, I, I want to invite us to, as we're reading these different passages, and I just sort of introduce, well, this is how, you know, this person might read it, or this is a, a decolonial reading of it, or this is a, a whatever reading of it. And I, I do that because I I just want us to wrestle with the text, you know, the way that Jacob wrestles with God in in Genesis 32, you know, just wrestle Mm. with it. I don't Mm want to provide, you know, this is how you should read it or this is the framework, but um, just invite a wrestling um, because I don't believe that there's necessarily one right way to read it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways to read it. Um, And so to be a good theologian, I think we got to invite all of that. Yes. And I even think some of that has been lost along the transition of Eastern to Western. Like Mm -hmm. we really care about truth in its final form. We've lost the ability to truly wrestle and hear from different perspectives and debate in a constructive way that's not trying to put people down, you know? Yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. I love that. Okay. So I have to get to chapter six because that was my all-time fave. Um, it's can funny, you help I've me pronounce heard it? that? <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's so it's so interesting because I I don't know a lot of people have said that they love that chapter. I'm like, oh, that's so exciting. I didn't know. You know, I didn't realize that. People oh my gosh! Feel that way. Yes. <laughs> yes. I would just say, just a pre- okay. So it's consiendo and creating. Cosiendo. So close. Cosien. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cosiendo and creating. Yeah. I just think just the presence of it in this book is such an act of resistance to patriarchal influences. You are sharing stories. It's just like so intersectional. You know, you're talking about, for those of you, you know, you're going to read this obviously because we love it, but it's, um, you talk about different impacts of the world through capitalism and how people and specifically women in the margins have created as acts of resistance. So Mm. like women making clothing and embroidery that is depicting injustice or figures of Mm -hmm. injustice. And oh my gosh, I I just have to say I met um, this woman, Ruby Sales, once in Mm. at the right at the like pivotal moment when we all found out it's been happening for a while but when we found out the realities of families being separated at the border Mm. and I'm an artist and I had this idea that I was rallying with my community to create this artwork to send to the border and Mm. I met with her and she told me she said art is not supposed to be cute but it's supposed to make people uncomfortable so that they are moved to action. And she referenced the quilts being made by grandmothers who were affected by the AIDS epidemic and they displayed them at the Capitol. And when I was reading this, I just thought, Oh my gosh. Yes. Like here, no, like the wisdom of Ruby sales, you know, telling me in this moment of time that like is insane that I even had the opportunity just to, hear from her but then like seeing they have been doing like our grandmothers have been doing this all over the world and 
generationally for so long. Oh my gosh, I could just scream. It was so good. So <laughs> anyway, the, my question about this is you go on to share about Tabitha and I was so, uh, I just was brought to tears because you talk about Tabitha's story from a new perspective of Abuelita faith. And I was, I just am curious if you can share a little sneak peek of like the truths that you took away when you're intersecting, like this is what's been happening in culture through generations with our grandmothers making art. And here is the story in the Bible. And like, we right, yeah. never see it. Yeah, no, I, uh, thank you for sharing all of that. I'm so happy that you got to meet Ruby <laughs> yes. Sales. She um, is incredible. She has been influenced me, you know, spiritually so much. And, oh, and, yes. You know. But anyway, yeah. Um, so that's something. Discovering Tabitha in a new light um, has was really one of the early things that sort of sparked um, my developing, I guess you can say, or my articulating of an Awalita faith. Um, and that's mm -hmm. because sewing for my grandmother, you know, creating, mm -hmm. creating art um, was such a huge part of my upbringing. I mean, that's what I watched her do day in and day out, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and like, it, I just, all, most of my memories growing up revolve, you know, some sort of um, standing on the table as she, mm -hmm. you know, cut the fabric and, and having her make me, she made me all my clothes and all my things, you know, when I was a child. Mm -hmm. And so that was a huge part of my upbringing. And so I remember, you know, kind of as I was working on the idea of this book and, and sort of rereading scripture and trying to, to, you know, pull out things that I hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so funny, because when you read the story of Tabitha, like when you are reading in Acts, Mm -hmm. And you get to the, you know, the headings of the different chapters oh, or whatever. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you get to this heading. It literally doesn't even mention her name. Like it just says like Peter resurrects someone or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I just remember, you know, kind of, okay, whatever, reading that. And then reading her story and, and thinking, wait a minute, there's so many little details here. Like she's called a disciple. She's one mm -hmm. of the only women, I mean, women and men together are called disciple in the New Testament, but she's the only specifically woman called a disciple. Mm -hmm. Okay, so she's a disciple. And then she's called on to be resurrected. You know, obviously, mm -hmm. like I say in the book, like all life has value and all life is worthy of resurrection. But why is her like, why is she specifically resurrected? You know, um, mm -hmm. I mean, in the New Testament, we only have besides Jesus, like three other people that are resurrected. So that isn't like a super common thing. You know, and a lot of people <laughs> right, die in right. the New Testament. So <laughs> I, you know, I started asking these questions and and how I mentioned earlier, just letting my theological imagination sort of soar. And I think that that's really important, you know, when it comes to reading scripture, because the Bible is a book written by men for men. And so the stories mm -hmm. of women are going to be kind of sidelined or quickly. And if you notice, most of these stories that I'm pointing out are like three or four lines. I mean, they're not mm -hmm. super long. <laughs> so, but I'm trying to ask these questions. And as I'm reading her story, I'm realizing there's so many things that are clearly she was very important in the community. Um, and all we know about her is that she's sewed. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the only thing we know about her. Mm -hmm. That's what's in the Bible that she, you know, that when she died, the widows were at her bedside oh, yes. holding up the tunics and saying, look what she did for us. And I think that that says so much, you know, when I read that through that lens of, wait a minute, she's a disciple. Her life was, 
you know, she was called upon or Peter was called upon to resurrect her. And mm-hmm. all we know is that she created art with her hands, that she, you know, created clothing with her hands. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, I thought, you know, that's an Awalita faith. That's an Awalita theology. Mm-hmm. That right there, you know, she was doing the thing. She was taking care of the widows. And if we know a few chapters earlier in Acts, there's a whole debacle about you know, the Greek yes. speaking, you know, Jews and all of that. I mean, clearly the widows were not being taken care of. There was a whole debacle in the church. And here we have Tabitha, you know, a couple cities away doing it, you know, just doing the work. And she's doing it in a way that is embodied and she's using her hands. Um, and yeah, and, I, and, you know, reading that, I thought, you know, that's my grandmother's story. And that's so many mm-hmm. stories of so many of our grandmothers, so many of our abuelitas, so many women throughout history. And, and so, yeah, so I was able to just, you know, sort of unpack these stories of women who have used their hands and embodied ways um, for as, as, um, you know, tools of resistance and tools yes. of, of uh, seeking justice. And, and it's incredible, you know, how, how many of these stories are untold or, or unknown, you know, it's, it really is incredible that, um, you know, they're, like kind of how you said that Ruby Seals is like, you know, making art, it's not, <laughs> yes. or it's not, yes. you know, it, it isn't, I mean, it can be sure, but, um, but for so, you know, f- throughout history, it's been used um, to stand against power and to do the deeply right thing, you know, yes. and I, I see that in Tabitha, I see that in my grandmother, and I see that in so many women throughout history. And I think it is just, um, it's incredible. And I, and I love that the Bible highlights that you know like the bias you know can be so subversive and i think that that if we're reading it with a specific lens i think that we can see that in the in the text oh my gosh yes and let me just say okay earlier in the book i believe there's this encounter that you have with a pastor and he calls you something is it disruptive or something like that unsubmissive maybe yes and (laughs) oh my gosh and i just am like well, obviously, you're just doing what our m- grandmothers were doing right. in the scripture. Like, clearly, right, right, you know, yeah. here we are showing up. Oh, yeah, my god, It's so interesting, right? Um, I was actually um, talking to a friend of mine, Sharifa Stevens, and, and I'm uploading her, her episode for my, on my podcast today. But that's one of the things that she mentions is that, you know, so much of what is, quote unquote, normal or typical in scripture um, as, you know, like, for example, in scripture to be awake is to be alive is mm. to be discerning of the spirit is to be you know they like we like we constantly read in scripture like wake up you know open your mm. eyes like have eyes to see but yet the term woke has become sort of uh, this this negative thing to describe mm-hmm. um you know whatever and so it's so interesting because it's true i mean we see so much like as you mentioned in the bible of of these women doing these things or of just life happening. And somehow, you know, the dominant culture, white evangelicalism, whatever you want to call it, has turned those things on its head and made them bad or negative or, or mm-hmm. think they avoided, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, what, what, what do you mean? You know, these are in the Bible. I mean, Jesus literally says, um, to be like the persistent widow, don't stop demanding justice. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. Jesus literally says that. Mm-hmm. But somehow, you know, we have turned into like, well, no, don't be disruptive, be submissive, don't, you know, rock the boat. And Jesus uh-huh. is literally saying the opposite, you know, so we've turned things on their heads. And 
it just really makes no sense. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I'm having all these thoughts over here. I'm even curious. I won't go too far because I feel like we'll just talk theology all day long, but I'm curious because what you pointed out earlier about the way Jesus lived his life, like who we see Jesus to be in the gospels, like his actual lived experience are all these things that are subversive. They're not submissive. They're subversive. They're political. And the, the narrative that we see in the dominant culture is like the revelation story where it's a prophetic message. It's not saying this is literally happening. It's a prophetic story. Like, Oh, here's hope that we can hold on to. And I feel like the, the larger narrative has co-opted the truth of what we see in Jesus' lived experience. And the right. way that your book takes all these different stories and brings them to life truly brings us back to like, oh, that's right. This is what we should be about. This is like the truth because we've seen it in the survival, in the responsibility, right, right. in the lived experiences of our grandmothers. Oh, my gosh. Right. <laughs> yeah, yes. I think that that is um... – yeah, I think that that's key is that sort of that I try and, and, you know, investigate this idea that survival is in and of itself a holy and sacred endeavor. It doesn't mm. need to be, you know, uh, yeah, it doesn't need to be Christianized in mm-hmm. order for it to be um, just completely soaked in God's activity or in, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, and yeah, we see that in so many of the women in the Bible, particularly, I mean, we see that throughout all the characters. I mean, most of them in scripture, but the women in particular, how they're using their sexuality and how they're, Mm -hmm. you know, using their ingenuity and their creativity in order to literally survive. You know, I always Mm -hmm. say that the story of Ruth and Naomi is so um, you know, it's made into this cute, sweet, oh, Boaz or, you know, whatever <laughs> yes. oh my uh, gosh. story. But I mean, that's not at all what it's about. It's about two women um, trying to survive. I mean, Ruth is literally telling, or excuse me, Naomi is literally telling Ruth, okay, you're going to go to this guy, find this guy, you know, wait till he's drunk. And then mm-hmm. you're, you know, like all these things, like she's developing this plan just so that they can ensure their survival, you know, mm-hmm. and we see all, you know, the women that, that engage in these sort of acts, they're in the genealogy of Jesus, you know, they're mm-hmm. the mothers of the faith, the sort of, you know, the, the foremothers um, in the storyline of Jesus. And there isn't mm-hmm. anything extra in their story other than mm-hmm. survival, right? Um, yes. And so I think that that's what's so important. And we see, and going back to what you were saying, these lived experiences, you know, mm-hmm. we see, and, and I know we talk about this all the time, but Jesus was like literally talking about the poor and like literally talking about <laughs> yes. bodies, you know, it wasn't this yes. metaphorical, heady, you know, future thing. It was a physical lived reality. Yes. And I just want to say that when you come from people who live by survival or Mm -hmm. when you know people who are doing their best to survive that is such a relief to hear in the scripture you know like that is such a relief to know where I come from is holy the space that my family has taken up the things that they've done in order to survive is soaked in God like that Mm -hmm. is such Mm -hmm. a relief because it the narrative is not often saying those things. Right, right, right. Exactly. Okay. So I want to go to your closing chapter. Can you, can you say that for me? Resolviendo? Oh, resolviendo. Yeah. In la lucha. Is that, Mm -hmm. yeah. What does that mean in um, English? Resolviendo is, um, 
it's hard to translate exactly, but it's sort of like to just get by. Um, the mm. exact word would be like to resolve, but mm-hmm. it's like this idea of, you know, I'm just I'm just figuring it out. I'm resolviendo, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Folks are just figuring it out. Again, the idea of day by day, just trying to get by, um, you know. And, and so resolviendo en la lucha is like just figuring it out in the struggle, essentially, mm. what that means. Oh, my gosh. And ugh, same point. Like if you grew up in the struggle – hearing that uh yes hello and right this, this closing chapter talks about that like this everything here is the struggle of survival in which powerless people find power and agency to face their lives the process of people getting what they need not for a long term or the future but the day at hand and you remind us like the lord's prayer our daily right. bread can you talk exactly. about that a little bit yeah so um resolviendo it's i actually um I sort of began wrestling with that idea through um, this. It was a study or something that was done on the Cuban people, um, the the currently on the island, mm-hmm. and resolviendo is sort of just a way of life that most of the people in the majority of the world live. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no five year plan when it comes to survival. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, um, when you aren't um, cushioned by many of the privileges that many of us are, including myself, obviously. Um, but if you're not cushioned by these privileges, um, then you're literally just trying to figure it out, you know, each day. What am I going to mm-hmm. eat today? What am I going to, you know? Um, and that's the story of many of many abuelitas, right? Many marginalized women um, mm-hmm. with a few dollars that you have. What are you going to do with it? And so that's something that I say, like, there are questions that we don't have to wrestle with every day. We don't have to wake up and say, okay, you know, I have these few dollars. What am I going to do with it? Or it's raining outside. Do I send mm-hmm. my child to school because they don't have, you know, how mm-hmm. do I put them on the or transportation or, mm-hmm. you know, any of these things? I mean, there are so many questions that in many ways, um, those with varying levels of privilege just don't even have to ask each day. Um, and so when it comes to this idea of resolviendo, um, the, you know, of just figuring it out, It's so, to me, it's so telling that that is literally, you know, a part of a huge part of the Lord's prayer, you know, Mm. Um, you know, our father who are in heaven, you know, give us our, and and part of it is give us our daily bread. You know, what can, Mm -hmm. what do I need for today to resolver, to figure it out? You know, Mm. not tomorrow's bread, not next week's bread, you know, what is today's bread? And we see that so much in so many different stories among scripture, I mean, needs are being met for the day and it's a trusting in God to meet those needs for that day. And I do believe that that is, you know, 100% the the story of the majority of the world, of the majority Mm -hmm. of the people in the world. And, you know, it's hard for those of us with varying levels of privilege to really grasp this idea of resolviendo, of, of, um, yeah, trusting in that, that today's bread, today's strength, you know, it could be literal bread. I need bread Mm -hmm. for today, but also just, I just need to make it till tomorrow. And what, Mm -hmm. you know, how do I make it to tomorrow? You know, what sort of strength do I need? Um, and yeah, that's the majority. That's the story of the majority of people in the world and the majority of, of stories in scripture. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Kat. Yes. I, I just cannot recommend this book for everyone. Um, Kat, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before I let you go, I'd love to, t- to know what are you working on now? Yeah. Um, well, I'm actually, so I signed a two book deal with Brazos. Um, so, yeah, so I yes, yes, yes. Okay. Tell us everything <laughs> that you can. 
Yeah, well, I can't yet, um, just because, you know, we haven't really, I haven't even sat down with um, them to kind of, you know, I'm still writing up the the proposal for the book. But, but yeah, so I do have a second book coming out. um, And that will be, um, my manuscript is due next, early next year. So I think it'll be the following 2023, early 2023. So um, yeah, uh, you know, I'll be posting about that once everything is finalized. Um, and then I will be taking the rest of the year off from maternity leave. And then I'll be back in January with, um, yeah, just new podcast episodes and, and fun stuff, um, you know, to wrestle, to continue wrestling with. Yes. Can you, um, give us the name of your podcast and let our readers know where to find you? Yeah, it's called the protagonistas or the protagonistas. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter, uh, specifically or Instagram at cat underscore armis. Um, also just my website, catarmas.com. If you want to order, uh, Abuelita Faith, I have links mm-hmm. there if you don't want to order from Amazon and, um, yeah, just, you can also find my podcast there. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I just have to reiterate for everyone listening. What I love most about reading this book is that it puts real flesh and blood embodiment to the bit- biblical stories, um, Kat shares about her grandmother and so many grandmothers and how their faith in their female lived experience and their empathy is just putting new ideas on the way that we read scripture. And I just want everyone to pick up a copy, go to her website, buy one for yourself, buy one for your siblings, your grandmother, your grandfathers, everybody buy one today. All right. Thanks so much, Kat. I just really appreciate your time today. And we're really excited to see what your next book is about. Yeah, no, thank you so much for engaging just so well with my book and and for being so excited about it. I love chatting with folks that, um, yeah, that just have so much wrestling or have wrestled so much with it. Um, So yeah, so thank you. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. All righty.